We are back for our final episode of Elements of a Garden. I'm Evan Meyer, Executive Director of the Theodore Payne Foundation, along with Dr. Alex Hall, UCLA climate scientist. And we are making a podcast to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Native Plant Garden Tour. And we're going elemental about Alex's garden here. And, and this is the final episode. And this is where we're going to really tie it together, Alex. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> The fifth element in these medieval alchemy systems is interesting because it's either called ether or void, typically is what I've read. But I, I really like the Captain Planet uh, methodology better because it's called heart. Heart, there's something kind of nice about that. We have, we've done um, water, we've done earth, we've done air, and we've done fire. And we're gonna tie that all together with heart. It's the thing that is critical that we maybe don't fully understand. That fifth element is sort of the ineffable nature of things, and it binds together these elements that we've discussed. It's the non-material fifth thing that is infused in everything, and I guess you could think of it as responsible for the interactions and for the whole. It's the, the secret sauce. What the ether was was kind of like the, the environment which things happened within, right? But I really liked the way Captain Planet did it, which was they turned it into heart, because heart, I think, signifies a lot of things that are really relevant to this conversation. Community, connection, spirituality, sense of place, a sense of purpose. And I think, you know, the environmental movement focuses on the material things sometimes too much, the metrics of success. And what we need also is some sense of why we're doing what we're doing and how we're connected to other people and things and places. And that arguably is the most important aspect of any of this because if we don't have pretty large-scale buy-in to environmental progress across our whole culture, we're not going to be able to implement the things we need to do to protect ourselves and protect everything that we share the planet with. I think it's interesting that you brought up that dichotomy of, of the way that environmentalism is really oriented towards the material and these other sort of modes of thought are, are lost. And I think, you know, one of the conversations that is out there a lot right now is how a lot of other worldviews have hadn't had a voice in this conversation. So I'd like to start there talking about heart as part of our series here in just honoring the indigenous people of Southern California, of Los Angeles, of the places that you'll visit on this garden tour. Yeah, the... Indigenous peoples have a powerful relationship with the plants that are native to this place. They use them in their everyday life for food and, and for other uses. And so the native plants were very much part of their world. You know, and I think there are places, um, for example, in, in Europe or Asia, where the native plants are also part of the, the local culture. Um, you know, olive trees are important in Greece. Oregano is used in Mediterranean cooking, for example. So this is a, a concept that I think is common to all the peoples of the world, that the plants in the native environment are, are important. And that's why I think that the indigenous peoples of California are especially important. The ways that they interacted with nature are especially important to us as native plant enthusiasts and practitioners. And just as residents of this place and people who live here now, that honoring that knowledge, that history, we were just doing some calculations of the amount of generations of people who lived here, of, of indigenous communities that go back hundreds of generations on these lands. And the depth of relationship and knowledge to the plants is, is really profound. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about acknowledging the legacy of colonialism and stewardship of Native peoples, but a very powerful and concrete way to do that is to respect their life ways and to work with the plants that are Native to this place. And that's, that's I think, much more substantive way, actually, to, to connect with the ways that Indigenous peoples interacted with, with their environment. And 
there's so much to learn from those perspectives. And so it's important to think about. Yeah, I like to kind of think about the idea of participatory relationships to the land and, and to your environment rather than a dominating relationship, which is really the one that came with colonialism, which was we're going we're going to get rid of what's here and impose something new. Um, I mean, the Los Angeles, the way Los Angeles developed is the epitome of a colonial mentality. The native vegetation, in terms of landscaping, just to mention alone, the, the native vegetation was completely scrubbed. Mm -hmm. And then there were these giant engineering projects <laughs> developed to convey water and import water into this place so that people could plant whatever they wanted and right. recreate in kind of a Disney <laughs> version of whatever the place was they, where they were from, whether it was New England or... I, I don't know, whatever whatever it is. Um, right. <laughs> and so that's a colonialist mentality, erasing what's here, imposing what you think a place should be or your version of, of a place. And what we want to do is reconnect with the place that we actually have. And that's what native plant horticulture is. And participate in this place and, and be in conversation with this place. Maybe also not own it. I mean, there's the concept of land ownership is a very Western concept. And what we should be thinking about more is I guess it's another the language that we have, the concept of land stewardship. But maybe we can go beyond that and think about it as being of a piece with the land where we are. Being part of it, being yes. part of the ecosystem. Yes. Um, not not a, you know outside observer, but an active participant. Or a dominator. Or, yeah. Right. So there is a stop on the tour, which if you're interested in indigenous perspectives, um, I highly recommend you visit Garden Number 17, Kuravunga and the Tongva Springs. It's an amazing Tongva village site that is being restored and has a beautiful native plant garden. And there's a museum and a cultural center, and it's a great way to interact with members of that community as well as uh, just the community in general because it's really a community-driven project. Um, they do volunteer days. It's just a wonderful place to check out. I spend a lot of time there myself on my uh, weekends just pulling weeds and hanging out, and we have cooked tacos together, and, and it's just a wonderful place. And I think that is one of the really important components of this conversation is the community and the friendships that, that you can build in doing good things and spending your time doing something that's fun but also worthwhile to the environment. I mean, we're friends through <laughs> through yeah, this, right? Yeah. I came to Los Angeles from Chicago via New York, and I didn't truly connect to this place until I started doing native plant gardening. And now when I go hiking, I can identify plants. Um, and I not only can do that, but I have an understanding of how kind of it all fits together here. And that sense of rootedness, that's mm -hmm. a personal root. It's my own deep taproot yeah. into this place. And that is something that I think a lot of people here don't actually have, yeah. sadly. And it's all been through native plants and, and cultivating native plants that, that I have gotten that, that sense of groundedness and connection. I also think that we, we've talked so much about our ecological deficits. You know, we're, we've built up so much debt to nature to the point where nature in many places is on the verge of collapsing and we owe so much back to nature. And that comes from this mentality of us wanting more for ourselves and us feeling like we want more stuff. Another consequence of that mentality is social isolation. You know, people are really hungering for community and for connection. 
it's been shown statistically that people actually do have fewer friends in America than than they oh, used to. Really? Um, so we really are less connected. And the native plant community is is a great way to meet other people. When I'm gardening out in my own front yard, I will have neighbors stop by and like they ask me, what, what are you doing? They're curious, you know, what are you, what's going on here? And, and the plants become a way for me to talk about native plant horticulture and the environment, but also a way to talk to them. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a, it's a conversation with them about what's going on in their lives. And so it, it's a connector. And I never would have had that if I weren't connected to my own garden. I think that's really true, and I've, I've noticed the same thing is when you're out pulling weeds in the front yard, people are much more likely to stop and talk. And that makes sense because we're sharing this space together. We're sharing this land together. And we often kind of get sucked into our own world, into the world of screens, into the world of social media. But we're here now living this life, and the, these things are all around us, and we can you know, share in them together. In one of our conversations previously, we talked about the smells and how that kind of visceral, memorable, nostalgic feeling of being somewhere and experiencing it. And I think the only thing better than that is to have that experience with someone else, and a family member, a significant other, whatever it might be. And I also think when you even come to a place like TPF, you can tell that the people are different. They're, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> what and, do you mean by that? And I'm not saying... It, exactly. They're a little different. Um... <laughs> No, I mean, just the, the people seem happier and more balanced. And I, I certainly in my own life felt that way as a result of my gardening. That's actually an understatement. I mean, I, it really, really, really dramatically changed my psyche. And I think there's an openness to connection with other people that comes from that, um, that is opened up by working with the environment and doing something that you really love and believe in. I think it paves the way for a community also. I agree with that, and I have so many great friends. Who, you know, This has been my career, and I've, I've worked in this with plant people the last 20 years. So I just, you know, I'm very biased, but I think that plant people are some of the best <laughs> people out there. Um, although I'm back to Corvunga for a second, it, it, there's a, so many interesting people come through there. So you'll have prominent members of the local indigenous community and, like, UCLA astronomers and Boy Scouts and little kids and, and elders and... Um, it's just like a mix of all these different people and the different perspectives and they're sharing and they're learning about each other and they're sharing their passion and creating that venue and that space, whether it's through gardening or through anything else, is beautiful. And, and um, there are a number of other public spaces on the tour that listeners can participate in. And if you don't have a garden, which many people don't in Los Angeles, um, there are so many ways to do this work without having any space to do it at your own home. You can, you know, there's tons of different parks, tons of different community organizations here at Theodore Payne, and I'd really encourage folks to, to utilize that and to tap into that community that's there. And while you're doing that and it's beneficial to you, you're also going to be, you know, making a lot of friends and meeting people. Yeah, there's those test gardens in Griffith Park. Mm -hmm. That's what it's called. T test plot, yeah. Test plot, yeah. I think Max Cantor, another one of our board members, is yep. involved in that. And, you know, when you go there, there, there are these places. In, it's a Elysian Park, I think, where they are, right? Uh, there's there's a number. There's one in Rio de los Angeles State Park. There's one in Elysian Park, one in Debs. And you go there, and there are these places where native plants have been restored in a limited area, and people are encouraged to volunteer to plant and tend these spaces. And you can tell that they have this kind of social gathering function, too, yeah. um, which is really, really cool and fun. 
So I think to some extent we're probably preaching to the choir here because those listening to this, I'm sure, already are participating or, or thinking about getting involved. The in, Kool-Aid is delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, but I always wonder how do we bring more people into the fold because you know my personal belief is that the more folks out there who are interested in environmental issues, interested in restoring uh, habitats, interested in preserving natural resources, interested in combating climate change, the more of that and the more that that's sort of self-identified as a group of people or a cohort or a community, the more progress we can make. You know, what needs to be done to have a bigger reach or a broader reach, do you think? Well, it's clear that in order to address really all of our sustainability challenges, we have to ignite a social contagion. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the garden tour is kind of an example of that, you know, where people can go and meet people who have native plant gardens and talk to them about their experiences and maybe get a little bit jealous of how pretty their garden is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, create that sense of community. And I've, I've certainly had a great time going on the garden tour with friends, meeting new people. Um, so I think that's an example of, it's an example of what we, we need more of. And I know, you know, as I, as I said earlier, when I'm working out in my own garden, I do meet neighbors and I, I have been able to um, connect to people. And in some cases I've been able to give them plants. I have a lot of plants that have naturalized in my garden. I mean, it's one of the joys of native plant gardening is seeing the plants have babies in your yeah. own garden. <laughs> so I have all, but now I have these surplus plants because I'm, I'm out of space, you know, so <clears throat> I've been donating them to neighbors and getting them interested. It's literally like I'm giving them this plant for them to take care of, and that's the seed of their interest, hopefully. Yeah. So I think plant sharing is something that I think is a cool way to connect to people too. Totally. Um, like, I don't trading, know. like trading baseball cards but, but yeah. with plants. Um, <laughs> well, you hit on something there that captured my ear, which is the idea of the joy and the love you see when, when there's new seedlings emerging. And I really don't think community has to be just about people. Community is those seedlings. We already kind of have this multi-species concept in certain ways, you know, in a broad way, like our pets are part of our community, right? The dog shows up at the party and everybody pets him and he's part of the, the community. And I think on the tour, you'll, you'll meet gardeners who feel the same way about the plants and the animals in their gardens. When the lizard moves in under the native plants that they planted, it's true joy. And to go see that lizard and check in on it is a very happy experience and that lizard now is part of their community yeah i mean there there was a point in my garden where where the plants matured enough that they kind of knit together as an ecosystem and there was this explosion of life in the garden at that point you know all kinds of species of bees and butterflies and birds um a cooper's hawk cook up residence in my garden um, i found a snake skin in my uh -oh. garden um, you know, all kinds of wildlife. And, you know, it really just ignites your curiosity. You know, you see these new species coming in and you try to figure out, well, who are you, you know, now coming in to visit me? And, and it just enlarges your sense of your own place in the world mm -hmm. and your sense of yourself in the world. And, you know, I, I think makes you feel much more grounded and part of something much, much, much bigger than yourself. Um, which I think is another another definition of community. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, um, you know, that idea of being part of something bigger is kind of the meta narrative of this whole podcast, right? We're 
We're looking at your garden as one specific point on the map and how many ways that extrapolates out to the land that we live in, the culture that we're part of, the history and the time continuum that we're on. I think that's all really fascinating and, and realizing that your garden is a point on the map, but it's also you know a point in time. And where it is today is not where it will be tomorrow. For each of our five episodes, we've asked a different member of the Theodore Payne Foundation staff to pick a plant that reminds them of that theme and describe it. Hello, my name is Flora. Yes, your hearing is good. I'm Flora. I serve as the nursery sales manager and oversee the sales yard at the Theodore Payne Foundation with a marvelous team of plant enthusiasts. For the theme of heart, I heart Cacalia cordifolia. Its common names are heartleaf or heartleaf cacalia or climbing penstemon. You are welcome to choose. One of my prize tasks at TPF is walking the sales yard and production areas to assess and notate stock. It is a repetitive task that never tires. It only deepens my connection to plants with new discoveries every time. There are moments when I get lost in a plant. Cacalia cordifolia is one of them. Each time I check on the stock, I swear it bows or nods to me with its young branches that arc when weighed down by its shiny, dark, verdant leaves or when in bloom with its red, orange to scarlet flowers that are described as beard tongue in shape, all inviting me into its space. If no one is around, I respond with a bow and whisper, thank you for the invite. So nice to see you and how are you so beautiful? On one occasion, I asked its permission to take a closer look. In that space of stillness, it brought me back to a childhood memory. I remember in fourth grade, that's how I drew the leaves on plants and trees, heart-shaped leaves directly opposite of each other. On the blank page, I placed the stem first, eyeballed the node to place the point of the pencil, and started to draw an elongated question mark on one side, switched my brain, and drew the same shape in reverse. I repeat that step going down the stem line. Once I got the rhythm, drawn the heart-shaped leaves, I was ready to draw the flower. If you run your finger along the leaf margin, there's an ever so slight tickle with its teeth-like edge. When in bloom, the outline of the flower takes on the form of an open mouth, similar to when the dentist says, open wide, and you see your tongue. One reference described the flower shape as bearded tongue. Imagine that. Its shape is of great importance for attracting hummingbirds. One of the values that I see in Kekiella cordifolia is when it goes dormant in the summer. I enjoy witnessing the branch and stems go from green to brown, then stop in time, leaving an exposed upright form that often describes as sticks, or as I lovingly call, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. For a while, I considered a plant in dormancy to be on vacation, by and by, it now feels like the plant is in meditation. I've come to appreciate that stage in a plant's cycle and its peacefulness. It sends a reminder to recognize and appreciate the quiet moments, especially among plants. I am a novice at Latin, but found cordifolia to mean heart-shaped leaves, and this species is aptly named. Yet all plants have a unique heart about them, as my colleagues have shared. A fire-following annual Popover californicum, western poppy perennial herb Lilium humboldtii, subspecies Oscillatum, the spotted Humboldt's lily, a grass, Sporabus aerodes, Alkali sacaton, and then tree, the Parkinsonia florida, blue Palaverde, 
It's a diverse palette that are all connected by the hearts of the plants. I hope one of these plants speaks to you, whether you are at the beginning or continuing to support native plants. They make wonderful companions. So we're sitting here um, talking about heart as an element, and I'm looking at the scrub jays flying around in the, in the distance and feeling the breeze, seeing the, the willows swaying in the wind, and just kind of thinking about how interconnected everything we've talked about is today. Everything is woven together. Every single element that we talked about relates to the other elements in some ways, and we mapped out some of those connections in the discussions, but there is a whole that is kind of hard to describe. Yeah, and I think that really when it comes down to it, that fifth element, ether, void, heart, whatever you want to call it, it it's us. It's our choices. It's the friendships we make. It's the futures that we work towards. That's one of the things that I think is also very exciting to me about working with native plants, the sense that we're doing something important we're restoring habitat, we're conserving water, we're building community, we're doing so many good things together. It really gives a lot of meaning in my life. And it's one of the few things I can point to where I can say that I've, I've derived a lot of meaning from. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And those of you who are listening who are new to native plants, there are so many ways to get involved. I, I think volunteering is a really wonderful way to get started. Obviously planting a plant, planting a plant at your home, on your balcony, at a parent's house, at a friend's house, at a community garden. It's pretty profound how the simple act of putting a plant in the ground can open up your eyes to, to this much greater world that we live in and, and give you a sense of hope and purpose and the feeling that even though we are in a scary and difficult moment in the environment, there is hope and we can change the course and move towards a much better, more harmonious future. And I think doing that together in community is going to be the way that that actually happens. And if you think about it geographically, too, in, in Los Angeles, we have these amazing wildlands, and then we have this urban area. And from a landscaping perspective, it's pretty much devoid of native vegetation. And yet every single one of these gardens on the garden tour is like a little point of hope yep. where we have these pieces. We're reconnecting the urban area with the wildlands and we are restoring um, you know some sense of the fabric of the place from an ecological perspective and that is paralleled by the building of community the connection mm -hmm. between people in their gardens yep. so it's healing in so many different ways here here um, <laughs> i definitely recommend everyone go visit alex garden and meet alex and talk to him and uh, for those of you who are looking to grow your own tap roots, there, there are plenty of ways to do it. Um, get involved. Um, local organizations get involved here at Theodore Payne. Grow a plant in your garden. Grow a plant on your balcony. Grow a plant and give it to a friend. I think you'll, you'll find that your heart gets a little bigger when you do that. So I think that's a great way to sum up our episode on the element of heart. And I want to thank you, Alex, for joining us for this podcast experiment. And I want to thank all the listeners uh, for, for tuning in and hope you are enjoying the 2023 Native Land Garden Tour. Thanks, Evan. This has been fantastic. So for those of you who are looking to find the best wildflowers in Southern California, 
Check out the Theodore Payne Foundation Wildflower Hotline, where you'll get a weekly update on the best places to view wildflowers throughout Southern California. You can also find in a podcast form on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And each week, we'll give you a curated guide to the best wildflower viewing in Southern California 